This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. When the best and the brightest can't afford to serve the public good, what are we selling out? An individual's career or the very promise of American democracy? In his new book, The Trap, Selling Out to Stay Afloat in Winner-Take-All America, our guest today, Daniel Brook, argues that the exploding income gap is systematically dismantling the the American dream as debt-laden, well-educated young people are torn between their passions and the pressure to earn six figures. Brooks' writing has appeared in Harper's, Descent, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Huffington Post, and the Boston Globe. Daniel Brooks, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on. Well, thanks for joining us. How's the, what's the weather like in Philadelphia today? Um, it's, it's hot and humid, as, as is appropriate for July. Yeah, well, that's good. I'm glad things are appropriate there. It's, <laughs> it's, it can get, uh, can get dicey what with uh, global warming and all. Yeah, actually, we had a heat wave last week. Oh, really? I suspiciously blame on Dick Cheney. <laughs> <laughs> so, how, how is it? Uh, how is the trap affecting Philadelphia? Now, is this is this where you first decided you were going to write the book, or, or um, were you? I mean, I was. I've been living here for for five years. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up in the New York area, uh, specifically on Long Island, which is a place that's actually often compared to to Orange County. Oh, really? um, and I and I, a lot of a lot of this is based on things I observed as I was growing up, and then once you know now that I'm 29 years old and old enough to do some some real research into it, I, I was able to look at uh, some of the broader trends and see whether it was just my experience or, or something larger. Um, but for example, I, I, on my street growing up on Long Island, we had uh, literally facing each other one one house was uh, two teachers, two mm-hmm. public school teachers, a couple, and across the street was. Um, an investment banker for J.P. Morgan on Wall Street. Um, and that's the kind of thing that just can't happen anymore. There are no longer places on Long Island where, where you would have teachers living alongside Wall Street bankers. And that's, that's because of in econo- rising economic inequality. I mean, we often think of rising economic inequality as, oh, yeah, that, that's you know, how a CEO makes 400 times what the average factory floor worker makes now, and it used to be, you know, 70 times. And, and that's, that's right. That, that's part of it. But the way it affects most of us who aren't CEOs or factory workers uh, is rising inequality within professions and between professions. So, say, between what bankers make and what teachers make, uh, but also within professions, like I examined the legal profession. And a generation ago, the government, nonprofit, and private sector all paid their starting lawyers similarly. And now there's about a hundred thousand dollar starting salary gap between a prestigious corporate law firm and a, a top of the line public defender office, for example. When or how did this all start to happen? Was there a particular point in time where where the uh, where the tables turned? Uh, well, yeah, that's that's actually one of the reasons it's so nice to be on the on the radio in California, because in a sense it's... Are you blaming like joke, It's all your fault. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> I think Mr. I, Reagan, I I believe. think yeah, I knew where you were going to go with this, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it has a lot. I mean, I argue in the book it has a lot to do with Ronald Reagan, and in a way, his governorship, uh, he sort of used his governorship as a, as a lab for uh, the conservative reaction that, that was later implemented uh, nationally when he became the president. Uh, for example, I learned this uh, just uh, researching the book, but particularly your older listeners probably may even remember this. Um, 
when Reagan was elected governor, his higher education policy was to end the hundred-year tuition of free in-state tuition at the in the UC system, mm-hmm. um, and he he got away with that. And and today, you know, they call them student fees, but there's basically there is tuition for in-state students, and that was a, a real change in the social contract. Um, the California dream, as it was called, was built on this idea that the best and the brightest students, you know, through hard work in middle school and high school could earn what was essentially an Ivy League caliber education at no cost. Right. Um, and no. Reagan, Reagan got rid of that, and, and I argue that that really, not only for students but also for parents, uh, changes the math of, of raising a family. It, and it also uh, slows down social mobility um, in that it's much harder for children who weren't born wealthy to get a top-notch education these days. So no matter where you're, you started out, you could get the education that would allow you and, and your family to, uh, to achieve uh, economic independence. But That's that, correct, and, and there was a, a similar, you know, in the 70s you had your proposition, I, I, I get all the numbers confused, but the proposition where, where, you, where you cut uh, property taxes. 13. That fund, yeah. Prop 13, yeah. that funds public schools. So now, essentially... Um, Every public school in California is like a prep school. If it's in a good district, you know, people give money to the local educational foundation and get a tax write-off. And if it's in a poor neighborhood, it just doesn't get the funding it needs. So, again, you get this more hereditary class structure where people who are fortunate enough to be born in a, in a well-to-do neighborhood are, are much better off than those uh, who, who grew up poor or, or working class. The other thing is, is there's this massive tax cut, and, and that, that was a national policy implemented by Reagan. He cut the top tax rate from 70% down to 28%. And this uh, has really exacerbated economic inequality in that people making more keep more, they invest it, they get lower taxes on the returns, and it, that's why the top is pulling away from, from the rest of us. And as you get this, this broadening, you see it, particularly in Southern California, um, where there's, there's less and less middle-class space. There are less and less places for middle-class families to live. So in, in 1970, this is a Brookings report that came out last year, the Los Angeles area was, was majority middle class. In 1970, most of its neighborhoods were middle class. And by 2000, only 28% of its neighborhoods were middle class. Wow. So the idea that you could, say, be a husband-wife uh, teacher, uh, social worker couple, or uh, public defender, um, nonprofit, you know, or te- uh, professor couple, and, and even find a place to live in the Los Angeles area is getting more and more dubious. Mm-hmm. Up in Northern California... 99.7% of the census tracts in San Francisco are no longer affordable to a teacher-headed household. No. Well, that's, that's very similar to where we are here in Irvine. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I would guess that most all the teachers that teach here in the city don't live in the city. And, and if they do, they're, they're uh, being supported by the other member of the household. Right, and that's why I focused on young people. Um, not because, uh, I, I sometimes joke, not because I, I'm 29, not because I think we're so interesting, but because I think we're so boring, <laughs> trying to figure out, you know, what has, has gotten in the way of us, of us doing more, more interesting things with our lives. And, you know, for uh, people uh, in, in my parents' age or even in their 40s or 50s, they, in, in a sense, got grandfathered into a more middle-class America, where they, right. which they grew up in. So, for example, you know, a pair of teachers could buy a house in Irvine or in Long Island. Yeah. Um, but that's that's no longer the case. And then you have the same thing with the tuition. I mean, private school tuition has gone up three times in real dollars. It's tripled in three in, in real dollars in a generation. Right. So it changes the math of raising a family. I uh, I want to. There's a quote I always uh, like like to uh, pass along whenever Reagan comes up in in in, re- in regard to these kind of economic issues. He actually said, uh, "quote uh, It's time to take the handcuffs off the millionaires." 
and put them on the welfare queens. Wow, and, that's a, and 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 really I close. and I think that summarizes Reagan's uh, f- philosophy uh, pretty well. Um, but I want now we can we can bash Reagan. Believe me, uh, Nathan and I can sit here and bash Reagan all day. But it's it's the extension. It's sort of the arc of this of this particular trend uh, that has really put the uh, put the uh, dent into the middle class. Coming bringing it up to today. Yeah, I mean one of one of the one of the places I. You know, maybe stray from the from the talking points is that I lay a lot of a lot of blame on the Democrats as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, back, you know, in the in the eighties, they rolled over for the Reagan tax cuts, but even more seriously, when they controlled Congress and the White House in the early nineties, they didn't really do much. Um, they they pushed they 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 made some modest uh, tax increases, but they never went back to the kind of progressive taxation that we had in this country, basically from World War II up up until Ronald Reagan. Um, and now with Bush, it's gotten, it's, I mean, the, the lid has come off. He has not only tax cuts on the top rate, he has, uh, he's, he's dropped the capital gains tax, so you, you actually pay more tax on the, on the money you work for than the money you earn from, from dividends, uh, yeah. which, is, which is preposterous. And, of course, eliminated the estate tax, which I, I just read yesterday, uh, was something even, even Andrew, Car- yeah, Andrew Carnegie thought was, was absurd. He thought we should have a very high estate tax. So there was there would be incentive for people to give away their money when they die, rather than pass it along, and create the kind of hereditary aristocracy this country was founded to to get rid of in the first place. Right, and I, I do think the Democrats bear a tremendous amount of responsibility. They never found the political backbone to to stand up to this, but they also, when they had the opportunity, which they did control Congress for many many years until ninety four. Mm-hmm. I think uh, for, 48 years in a row they controlled Congress, something like that before yes, the House. Ni- ni- right. the house. Uh, obviously, they had to play along for this to happen, and um, they just ran. Every time somebody said they're the tax and spend Democrats, they uh, they turned tail and ran, and this is what we're, what we're faced with. And one of the things that's bothered me recently is now that we have a, a Senate that is, is not controlled by the Republicans, it's now titularly controlled by the Democrats, we found out that nothing can get done until you have 60 votes. Well, when, mm-hmm. did, the, when did the Republicans have 60 votes? And, the, yeah, and yet no, all these that's things a good happen. Point. I mean, the, the Democrats' lack of a spine is a, yeah. has been a serious problem yeah. for many years. I mean, part of it is the campaign finance system, where even yeah. uh, in, the, in the book, in the introduction, I have um, a passage about Hillary Clinton and bankruptcy reform. When she was the first lady, this bankruptcy, quote-unquote, reform bill, written mm-hmm. by the credit card industry, came up, and she personally lobbied Bill to veto the legislation mm-hmm. because she... She'd, um, spoken with a, a professor of bankruptcy law and who showed how, how terrible this bill would be for single mothers and their children. Um, and then when she became senator, she actually voted for the, essentially the same bill yeah. um, because the, the industry, had, had the, the credit card industry, had donated so heavily to her campaign. So in, in some sense, it's, you know, we're up against something systematic. It's not just a matter of getting a candidate with their heart in the right place, but we really do have to change the way we finance campaigns if we're ever going to be able to, to roll the boulder back up the hill. We're speaking with Daniel Brook. The book is The Trap, Selling Out to Stay Afloat in Winner Take All America. Now, uh, I've heard some criticism of your book where they're saying, uh, where people are saying we shouldn't have to feel sorry for for people that are having to make the choice between six figures and doing what they dream of doing. But I, I think your point is more that this is actually uh, tearing apart America. It's it's uh, t- 
taking what is idealism and what is good about the country and just giving a bottom line to everything and stripping away idealism completely. Is that am that, I? That's, yeah, that's correct. I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying. If I wanted to write a book about people you should feel bad for, I would have maybe written about disabled people in, in yeah. the third world. Um, I'm not, my, my point is not that we should feel bad for these people, but to look more broadly at what kind of society we're becoming. If take Washington D.C. If if you can't raise a family in the Washington D.C. area on a public sector salary, who is going to be able to? Who? Wh- what kind of government are we going to have? We're going to have a government of of revolving door people who go in for a year or two and then go out and, and work for the private sector and are so compromised that we get the kind of government we've had for the last uh, the last seven years. So it, the the idea is not to feel bad for someone who went to the Kennedy School and wants to be a public servant and instead has to go work for McKinsey and Company doing consulting for corporate management, but rather to think more broadly about what kind of society this is creating. When, we, when we're no longer tapping the, the talents and the idealism of our most talented and idealistic people. Yeah. There's a statistic that I've heard, uh, that, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the United States among industrial countries in the world, the United States now has the greatest disparity between the richest and the poorest. Is that an accurate statement? That's, a, that's an accurate statement. The only, the only caveat is when, if you count Russia as an industrialized country, which most people don't, but some people do, then Russia would take the cake. But we're certainly uh, far ahead of, of every, everyone else, and certainly Western Europe and, and Japan and the types of places we usually right. think of. Does, um, it, does, yeah. it, does it feel like in America, what, one, uh, one way of saying what, what your book is talking about is that America is being sort of hollowed out that yeah. we're, that we really are kind of a, a sort of a shell in a, in a way, or I don't I don't want to say Potemkin Village. I know that there's more to it than that, but it does feel like we're being hollowed out from from the middle out. Yeah, I mean we're losing our middle class, especially in our in our major metropolitan areas like Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, and my argument is is that this is both bad for people and bad for society. That you actually have more control over your life when there's a, a more equal distribution of income. Because you, 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 there are all sorts of things you can do in Los Angeles and provide for a family, as opposed to a narrower and narrower band of things that you can do. Mm-hmm. Now, there's one uh, survey that you cited in the book, and I just want to be sure I got this right. Uh, a 2005 survey showed that public service was the most desired profession at top universities. That's correct, and that, uh, I'm happy that some of this, this, these types of studies are finally coming out, because... For a while, there was this rhetoric of um, young people today being very self-centered and not really caring uh, uh, about, you know, the, the, the public good. And that's, that's really not true. I mean, young people today are incredibly service-oriented. And, yes, this study, which, which is done by a group called Universum, which their whole, it's, a, it's a private business. I mean, their business is surveying students at selective universities and basically selling the research to big Fortune 500 companies to help recruit them. But they ask, what are you most interested in doing after graduation? And public service actually came in first in the, what would you ideally like to do? Now, when you consider that most people graduating from selective colleges are, are five figures in debt, that's going to change the, the math of what they actually can do. But there is all this idealism, and the, in some ways the book is an attempt to explain why all of this idealism does not seem to pan out. Well, which you just explained, which is when you... We, you were talking about earlier that when Reagan changed it from being able to go to college for, for from f- going to there for free yeah. to having to pay a lot of money, have now to you take out loans. Now you have people. You say five figures. I know there are a lot of six figures. There are six. Yes, I mean the average is five figures, but yeah. in, a lot of people I write about in the book are, are in the six figure category, and that's what what one 
social critic I quote calls the ambition tax. Yeah. I mean, we're basically taking the most ambitious and brightest people, the people who weren't born wealthy, but were, were you know worked their way up and yeah. went to these you know to the, these top schools. And their reward is being over $100,000 in debt. 5% of, of young people are now $100,000 in debt from educational loans. And that, that, that's growing rapidly. And, and that's where you, this is where the, the crux of it is, which is if you're from a wealthy family, these kinds of the amounts of money aren't nearly as significant in terms of the effect that they have on these students' lives. Right, and that's what's so frustrating about uh, you know, some of the people who, who have criticized the book for saying it's a, a tearjerker about people who went to Harvard Law School. I mean, how bad can we feel for these people? Mm-hmm. Uh, don't, don't, don't really understand. I mean, I feel like they should have to make the argument that only independently wealthy people should have any control over their lives. Yeah. I and mean, that's essentially what they're saying. Right. And I wish they would come out and defend that rather than try to, you know, mock, um, you know, some, some of the people that I, that I quote in the book. Yeah. Are, with, the, with the Democrats more in control of of the uh, legislature and, and across the country you see more state legislatures uh, controlled by the democrats are we beginning to turn the corner are we going to see in 2008 a, a sort of a, a real push uh, I, I, uh, go ahead i think we're making progress but i think the issues are too balkanized instead of seeing all of these mm-hmm. problems as linked to rising economic inequality we, we see them as individual issues so on the health care issue you know there really is movement um, but on something like Higher education finance, there's not. I mean, the, there are proposals to raise the value of a Pell Grant, which is all well and good, but it doesn't address the fact that, you know, Thomas Jefferson created, like, the American model of education is the free model that Reagan got rid of. And Thomas Jefferson founded the University of Virginia as a tax-funded university, specifically so any student, regardless of family background, who was, who was bright enough, would get a top-notch education. That's the American model that we need to revive. And nobody, uh, at least none of the major... Democratic candidates have proposed anything along those lines. Also, with, with taxation, there's a lot of talk about bringing up the bottom, but of course, no one wants to start a fight about pulling down the top. But, you know, that's a fight that FDR won, and it's a fight we need to have again. So well, bring it on. Well, you just brought up the one thing. This is sort of a pet thing of mine, which is does America need a new deal? Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely need a new, new deal, and it's just a matter of how long we're going to wait and how ridiculous these things are going to get. I mean, with health care, it looks like we're hitting that point. Mm-hmm. With education, the estimate right now is a baby born today can expect to pay $150,000 to go to a four-year public college and $300,000 to go to a, a private college. I mean, are we going to wait until having a family is, you know, you need a million dollars to educate your kids before we do something? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. at a certain point, you can't fool all the people all the time, but I mm-hmm. hope we get there, we get to that point sooner rather than later. Well, we're speaking with Daniel Brook. The book is The Trap, selling out to stay afloat in a winner-take-all America. Um, go ahead. I was just going to say, what, what happens to people when they realize that their idealism is <laughs> not going to pay the bills today? I mean, do, do they just immediately jump into a, uh, a banker's job? Do they make the attempt? If they can. Um, people often, you know, try to do, go midway. I mean, I quote in, in the book, I have um, a, a woman uh, from New Mexico. She was a Fulbright scholar. She did research on human trafficking in Latin America, and, and she moved to, she worked in, in New York City at a nonprofit that, that deals with this, this very issue. Um, and right now she works weekends at a, at a restaurant, so she literally, you know, 14 hours a weekend. So she gives up her weekends doing, you know, work she couldn't, she, she really doesn't 
care about, and this yeah. is all to afford her apartment in Queens and, and service her debt, her educational debt. I mean, people try to do the intermediate thing, and there are people who are willing to give up a lot, and I, I, I call them saints in the book. I mean, there's one, one guy who volunteers for the San Francisco Living Wage Coalition, which literally stopped paying its volunteers when they realized they couldn't afford to pay them a living wage, and he lives in a boarding house. And he says, you know, I don't have a family, so it's okay, and I'm willing to make that sacrifice. But the idea that, we, that we're demanding this much sacrifice of people um, is, is not a, it's not a sustainable model. Um, and then you do get people who at some point throw in the towel and do something else, and there are fewer and fewer things in between. I mean, like, like the legal profession is a good example. It's, there are a lot of jobs paying $150,000, and there are a lot of jobs paying $40,000, and there aren't a lot of jobs paying $65,000. There just aren't, there's just not, that's... So when we talk about the hollowing of the middle class, it's the hollowing of the middle from the wage structure. That's what causes it. Yeah. So there's really less and less in the middle for these people to do. And it's, it's really sad. I mean, I, 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 you know, none, of, none of the people I quote in the book are, are people I'm friends with or have personal relationships with, but some of them were people referred to me but, you know, through sort of a chain of mm-hmm. uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I heard about one of, the, one of the people in the book who has, you know, sort of a self-loathing corporate person, um, you know, I heard through the grapevine, you know, now spends most of his nights snorting cocaine. Yeah. Um, so it can have these, these kinds of psych- psychological ramifications that, that are, you know, really horrifying. Yeah. Well, well h- go ahead, Mike. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, how do we get out of this then? Uh, is, there, uh, is it something that the private sector is going to get to, or is it something that uh, the government's finally going to have to realize they're doing wrong? Or do you, how, how do you see us... Spinning out of this. Well, um, you know, as with as with cocaine, the, the first step is acknowledging you have a problem. And yeah. I think that's the service of the book is to is to mm-hmm. you know give a big Houston we have a problem to the whole country. Right. Um, but getting out of it, you know, is going to take uh, collective solutions through through our democracy. Um, once once we realize that, ine- that rising economic inequality is a problem, it's really not that hard to counteract it. I mean, mm-hmm. we can ra- raising the minimum wage is is a doable policy implement. And I, I point out in the book, our, our minimum wage is half of the UK's, which explains why we have so much more child poverty than the UK. I mean, if we want to make it yeah. an issue, we can deal with it. And then progressive taxation, again, you know, it takes, it takes leadership um, and it takes push, people pushing from the bottom. Um, it takes people organizing unions. Um, it, it, it'll take a, you know, a, a leader of the caliber of FDR to say, this is not what America is supposed to be about. It, it takes prioritizing, uh, and as an example, we spoke earlier about California. In the last 20 years, I think that's the right time frame, about 20 years, in California we've built 21 prisons and one university. Yeah, yeah so, those, are the, those are the priorities of yeah. the yeah. conservative backlash. Yeah. yeah, we've got to flip that around. We do, mm-hmm. we do. Well, and this book certainly is, is one, one place to start. Uh, the book is The Trap, Selling Out to stay afloat in a winner-take-all America, and our guest has been Daniel Brook. Daniel, thank you for being here on Weekly Signals. Thanks for having me. It was great. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week... I'm Nathan Callahan, and I'm Mike Caspar, and this is Weekly Signals.